So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to Inside the Mind of Champions. This week we're going to be supporting Mental Health Awareness Week. I wasn't sure whether to make that the theme for this week's episode for two reasons. Firstly, I don't think any of these big issues should just be a week. I appreciate that it raises awareness, but how many businesses just push out some kind of self-help tip sheet and a web link because their schedule says that that's what the corporate agenda is for this week? And secondly, most people seem to interpret these efforts as mental ill health avoidance week. The news is about statistics of depression and suicide. Now, as someone who's had personal experience of suicide in our close family twice, I'm the first that would say that we've got to do everything we can to reduce the number of suicides. But I think that mental health is such a huge spectrum And while there are thousands of people suffering and needing urgent remedial care at that lower end of the scale, there are many millions of people who are in the middle having a really tough time and they need some skills and practical support to help them get back to being happy, healthy and fulfilled in their lives and careers. I often think that it's this massive group of people who slip under the radar when we talk about mental ill health with the statistics and the headlines. There are so many people at every point along the scale which goes from mental ill health needing clinical interventions at one end through to the elite performers that are just using mental skills to get marginal gains out of their performance at the elite end. But we need to understand and have so many different support programs, content offerings and conversations to help people wherever they are at this moment in time. The truth is that we're all sliding up or sliding down that scale every day. But part of the stigma is attached to mental health because we've defined it as this binary thing. You're either healthy or you've got a problem. And all the statistics and headlines tend to be about the problem. And as a result, we don't talk about it because it's taboo. I don't want to be, if it's binary, to be in that bad group that are really struggling and can't cope. So as the famous book suggests, I think there are 50 shades of grey in this complex situation and we definitely need to kickstart a new approach. I've been out with friends that have chatted openly about the chiropractor that helped them with their slipped disc or the physio that helped them with their frozen shoulder 
or the chiropodist that sliced off their verruca. Physical therapy seems to be something we're proud to share and even give referrals to the people that have helped us. It's almost that it hints that our chassis is in perfect condition now that it's been filled and polished. But we don't talk about the engine, our mindset. That remains under the bonnet. It's too sensitive. It's too private to be discussed in public. As a result, we bury the anxiety, the frustration and the despair until it multiplies and consolidates and then eats away at our self-esteem. We lose our perspective and we just listen to that one negative voice spiralling round in circles, chipping away at our confidence. And we lose that ability to cope and we start to isolate ourselves away to deal with it alone. And from there, it's very, very hard to come back. So mental health should be considered in parallel with our physical health. Just like we have specialists for our eyes, our hands, our feet, our digestive system or arthritis, we should see mental health with the same different shades, the same set of components or attributes. So our confidence, our self-acceptance, our purpose, our focus, our motivation, our personal plan for our career in life and our sense of agency or control over the world. Just like our physical health, our eyes can be great, but our back can be sore. In our mental realms, our drive can be high, but our self-esteem can be low. And these nuances are the reality. I often think of our mental health as one of those massive ropes that we see on a ferry or a fishing boat in port, where 10 individual strands have been woven together. Each strand needs to be independently strong but it's the intertwining of those elements which gives the rope its overall durability to withstand the harsh demands of that maritime climate. So with that rant over, let's set sail on today's episode. And this year's theme is the benefits of spending time in nature. And I absolutely agree with this. I'm very fortunate to live out in the English countryside with paths and running trails pretty much from the back door. And I realise that's not the case for everyone. But like many, I've found the last 18 months incredibly challenging and there have been three key things related to nature which have given me a massive psychological boost. The first is exercise in the fresh air. Each weekend I try and have a longish run or a bike ride for an hour or so. I personally prefer to go out on my own as it allows me to switch off from all the presenting and workshops and webinars that I've been doing during the week and I just listen to some audiobooks or podcasts or just listen to my own voice in my head. I can't say I'm desperate to get going and, and pull on my shoes but uh, as they say the hardest section of a long run is to get out of the front door in the first place so you never regret exercising outdoors. There are just so many benefits. I often trot past a group of mammals middle-aged men in lycra as they're called who meet every Sunday morning outside the local church in the next village and while they choose not to walk through the archway and the old wooden doors of the church cycling together is their congregation and as they worship the local lanes I'm sure their spirits are lifted. They'll be lifted through the waning levels of adrenaline and cortisol that have been building up through the pressurised week and they get burnt off with exercise. These stress hormones are then replaced by the natural endorphins that act like mini shots of morphine 
boosting their pain tolerance, boosting their appetite and helping them to sleep better. Exercise positively alters our brain chemistry. So not only are we giving our heart and lungs a good workout, we're also using our body as a tool to refresh our brain. Exercise makes us feel so alive and ironically, it gives us much more energy to tackle the psychological challenges ahead. A couple of months ago, I posted a short video on LinkedIn. It was to try and help people with their New Year's resolutions when they'd started to hit the wall and getting people out into nature is a great reason to exercise. We often feel the pressure of running as another massive thing that we've got to do. It's a binary thing again. You're either fit enough to run for half an hour nonstop or you're not. So people don't even start because it just seems too tough. So I suggested a new phrase on LinkedIn, which was going for a jork. I used to uh, have my heart rate, watts, sprint speed and bleep test measured as a professional cricketer. But now, thankfully, I don't. And I can take things at my own pace. I see exercise in my body as a lifestyle choice, a way to recharge my brain. So jorking takes the pressure off me from having a timed run to beat my personal best. I just start jogging. And then if I see something interesting, like lambs in the field or a bird of prey circling above, then I'll just walk for a bit and watch for a bit. Then I'll get my breath back and then I'll set off again. And this jogging and walking or jorking is exactly what gets my brain clear. I might even do some sprints from this tree to that farm gate and then walk to the next hedgerow. Break the exercise up so it doesn't feel like one monotonous, continuous flow of hard work because you probably won't come back again. But I see this lifestyle run as, you know, a great mix of running and walking and sprints. And I used to worry about if people saw me driving past in their car and saw me walking. But honestly, I couldn't care less now because the benefits that I get are great. And I could be out for 45, 60 or 90 minutes. And I absolutely love it. Now, I know many of my listeners are timing all their activities and posting it all on Strava, and that's fine. It's great to set yourselves and your mates those competitive goals. I'm just offering jorking up as an alternative. And it's a bit like the Couch to 5K initiative. As long as we get out into nature and being active, you're scoring points. So you work out how much jogging you want to do and how much walking you want to do. But I'd love you to share your pictures with me on Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn so that we can all jork together. The second key benefit of nature on my mental health has been our dog Severus. Uh, now he's a male Hungarian Vishla and he's a strong, energetic dog. He's great fun and heading out with him early in the morning every day through the sunshine, showers and snow has been absolutely amazing. I would add that it's rarely been relaxing and he's chased most of the nature around here but he's the reason I've been getting up and active early every morning. As I work from home now um, with three walks a day it gives me that essential break both for him and for me and my brain gets oxygenated and I get a chance to think through some of my client puzzles and challenges from a more dynamic and active perspective. As we spend time outside in nature we also get the benefits of vitamin D which helps us to absorb calcium and phosphate from our diet to get stronger teeth and bones. So that's an added bonus of being outside. I think caring for 
pets, dogs or chickens or whatever it might be also gives you a different perspective. When we feel stressed, one of the things we can do is become very self-focused and ruminate over every issue that's been going on in our minds. But then when we throw our focus onto helping other people or other things, then it can be a very powerful way to escape our own challenges just for a few minutes. And we also feel vital and needed by that other living creature. The third thing for me in the way that nature supported my mental health is through my guilty pleasure of gardening. I don't think I've shared it too widely on the podcast, but I absolutely love being outside in the garden. We've only got a small garden at home, but I can easily spend four or five hours planting, cutting back and cutting the lawn. Again, there are so many reasons why I think this has helped me. Firstly, I'm outside with my mind on something completely different to my webinars and psychology sessions. All my senses are engaged, which means I can really switch off from those normal thought patterns and routines. I can smell the flowers and the cut grass. I can hear the bird song. I can see the various colours and feel the soil as we get to work planting. I also get that great sense of satisfaction from attacking a corner of the garden and tidying it up so that it looks neat and well laid out as I sit with a coffee or even better with a beer later in the day. Our garden is so relaxing. I obviously see it as a, an extension of our house. And then I think gardening is inherently optimistic. We plan something or move something, hoping and believing that it'll definitely grow into a beautiful plant. Of course, things don't always turn out like that in the real world, but we always have to believe. We might plant daffodils or spring bulbs in the garden during the autumn season with all that cold and dark weather ahead of us. But we have to imagine what they're going to look like as they burst through the frozen ground to light up those dark days in the early spring. So this calls for visualisation and hope. Thirdly, in gardening, we have to look forward maybe three to six months. How big will this plant grow to compared to its neighbours? Will it be in full sun or will it uh, be in the right soil conditions for it to thrive? Will it die back in winter or will it be evergreen and provide structure? Throwing ourselves forward six months and imagining that scene, what it'll look like is another powerful skill. Do we do that in our, in our own private and, and career lives when we're experiencing tough times? To forecast six months forward, to think about what consistent growth and positivity we need to thrive. If the rest of my life blooms like my garden in the next six months, I'll be absolutely thrilled because I'm very excited about what's to come. So for me, the exercise, our dog walks, the garden have been hugely beneficial for my mental health in the last 18 months. So maybe you could start to joke if you've been stuck behind a desk. You could walk the neighbour's dog every lunchtime if you don't have your own. You might have to ask them first. Or you could nurture some potted plants on your windowsill if you don't have a garden. But either way, the benefits are there and we need to integrate nature into our definition of being mentally healthy. Now, over the last few weeks, I've been asking for questions from our podcast community to make sure this episode delivers the support in the areas that you'd like it most. And we've got some great questions. And the first one comes from Richard, who's a regular listener and a leader in the police force. And he asks, with the continuing working from home situation, what advice do you give 
as a leader manager to identify any well-being mental health issues with the individuals that make up the team whilst working remotely. Obviously, there's a lot less direct interaction. Well, Richard, thanks for that question, and it's a great one. Research from Bupa a few years ago suggested that 34% of managers didn't know how to spot the warning signs of mental ill health. And another piece of research more recently said that almost 70% of the people suffering from mental health problems didn't want to tell their boss as they were worried about the stigma and the effect on their future career prospects. So we can see this strange situation where stress levels are ramping up due to the uncertainty and the pressure and the disruption that the pandemic has caused. Managers are working remotely from their team members, so it's it's really hard to pick up on these signals. And people don't really want to share the fact that they might be struggling with mental health issues because they're worried about the consequences or the judgment of it. So we've got a real challenge here and, and spotting the warning signs when we're working remotely is even harder. So I think it's important to understand that each individual's experience of mental ill health and their coping strategies will differ widely. So what we're trying to do is pick up on a pattern from the way they used to behave when they weren't so stressed or, or feeling under pressure. So for example, the warning signs could come up as physical symptoms such as fatigue and headaches, or they could be psychological like anxiety and feeling overwhelmed or the inability to concentrate for extended periods. They could also be behavioural like increased alcohol consumption. They, they're doing that to try and cope or they may be being really erratic uh, with emotional outbursts and, and that's what you pick up in their behaviour. And we could also have changed discipline or attendance patterns where maybe missing online calls or, or they're starting to miss time during the day and work really late hours into the evening. So there's a real mix of things that we're looking for. And I suppose what we're trying to see is how much people have changed from their normal rhythms and routines, which we, means we'd need to have know them pretty well in the first place. So I think your point about people working remotely adds another degree of challenge and separation for us. But also we've got to think about what people's normal pattern was. And it's made even harder for people that we haven't worked with for a long time because we don't know what their normal looks like. So I think two things might help. And it's firstly to proactively build these checkpoints into our normal natural conversations, not making it the central part of a meeting, but, you know, uh, maybe an early check in. I know that from working in some corporate cultures. Some people don't talk openly about these kind of things, so we might need to start with baby steps. But for example, many of the elite sports teams around the world have an app or an iPad down in the breakfast room or on the players' phones, and they sort of tap in the well-being scores in the morning when they come down to the, the, the sort of breakfast room. And this allows the support team then to track back into the nutrition, training and travel schedules in recent days so we can pick up on the trends to see how the workload and the recovery plan might have affected motivation and mood so we could go around a you know a small team meeting on zoom asking everyone how they're feeling today out of 10 you know in a mature and supportive culture this allows people to signal that they may be feeling like a, a four or a five out of 10 today because maybe the baby kept them awake or they're really worried about a client call that they've got coming up 
And in a weaker culture, you'll have everyone saying, yep, yeah, I'm fine. I'm seven out of 10, even when they're feeling far from it. So I would take seven out of the equation as a starter. And that just nudges people one way or the other. They've either got to say they're sort of subpar or sub sort of standard response, which is probably seven. And they've got to say they're feeling like a five or a six, or it pushes them to say, actually, I'm feeling eight. That's pretty good. So again, it's not so much about the score. It's about people feeling that they can give their honest reflection of where they're at. So depending on the size and the culture in your team, you may need to do this more as small groups or even one-to-one check-ins. But we're looking to normalise people's mental wellness and energy levels as part of the discussion every week, you know, and getting us thinking about those things so we can spot some kind of pop patterns over over long periods of time. And that helps us then to spot some of those discrepancies. If someone's been consistently saying they're a six, they're an eight, they're an eight, they're a six, they're an eight, they're an eight. And then all of a sudden they drop down to say a five or a four gives us a reference point that's a bit more tangible. And the second thing is that leaders need to lead with that message. So if you're struggling a little bit, for example, if you're feeling flat or you need some quiet time away from meetings that day, then that's fine. You know, we need our teams to understand how we feel. And, you know, there's no point us showing no vulnerability whatsoever and acting like the Duracell bunny, just banging the drum every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every quarter, because that's not human. And we all have these energy cycles and periods where we're energetic and focused. And then it's very natural to have days where we're feeling a bit sluggish or we're you know, not feeling quite as, you know, on our best game, but we're still committed. We still want to do well. And it's about delivering our best game as often as we can, but also accepting that we're going to have some days where we're not firing on all cylinders. Another idea, Richard, once we've built these baby steps and started making these conversations a bit more normal is to take the conversation to the next level. Often we ask that first question and say, oh, hi, Dave, how you doing? And the natural response is, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm okay. And if we take those as the sort of reflex comments when you're asked a a question about how you're doing, then we need to get that second question in and we might get a slightly different and more colourful answer. So you might say, Dave, I'm really, really genuinely interested in how people are coping uh, at the moment because we've had a really tough period and it's hard when I don't get the chance to get together face to face with you and we can meet up for lunch or have a drink. So if you couldn't have said, "Okay, I'm good or I'm fine to my first comment, what would you say to describe your motivation and energy levels at the minute? I personally found last week really hard, but I'm a bit better this week. So how are you doing? And that sort of second level of question with some context and you leading the way saying you've had some tough ups and downs in recent weeks, I think might give you a different answer. You're giving them permission to add more context and depth rather than just giving a bland reflex, okay, fine or good, which is where we mostly stop. Now, often people who are struggling get brilliant at taking the attention away from themselves and just give a deadpan answer. But by sharing how you're feeling with the ups and downs, hopefully that makes that human interaction a little bit more uh, honest and authentic so people are more comfortable. I just wanted to share a moment to let you know that I've recorded a special free webinar on mental well-being and resilience on the sportingedge.com website. It's under the resources tab. 
There are loads of insights in there. It's about an hour long and it's completely free. So I'll be sharing lots more insights on there. If you want to join that website, then go to sportingedge.com. I've been running lots of webinars over recent months with our corporate clients from HSBC to BNP, Gartner and AstraZeneca. So if you're experiencing strategic change or you need to develop more of a growth mindset or you need people to be better with their mental health and resilience, then please do get in touch. I'd love to design something bespoke for you that equips everybody with those inspirational insights and also those mental strategies we need to accelerate out of the pandemic. So if you need a bespoke session designing for your business, then just drop me a note at hello at sportingedge.com and we can discuss some of the key themes that you're looking to cover. So the next question I had was from Lucy in Edinburgh and Lucy said, how have you seen elite sports coaches handle pressure when times get tough? Well, thanks, Lucy. It's a brilliant question. And I've been very lucky to work alongside some international sports coaches and Premier League soccer managers. And I know that almost match day is the hardest day because they've got so much frustration and emotion built up on the touchline that, you know, they they can't kick the ball or they can't tackle anyone themselves much as they might like to. So often them exercising and burning off some energy first thing in the morning before all the meetings and you know, the walkthroughs and things like that is a really good way for them to start the day on a positive and, and focused way. But the scrutiny on elite coaches is massive, you know, and everyone has got an opinion and a view on selection, on the strategy, on the game plan, the substitutions, and then straight after the game on those press conferences. It really is relentless. So being strong enough to take time to rebalance your own energy is essential. And this interview insight from the former England rugby coach and now successful coach at Leinster, Stuart Lancaster, illustrates how he escaped the pressure cooker on the England training camp during the Six Nations. Whilst physically at the end of the Six Nations, the last two Six Nations, I've been, I've been fine. I probably emotionally I've been probably more spent than I realised um, because I've been given so much to everyone else. Um, and uh, sometimes... You need to find your own space to recharge your emotional battery as opposed to your physical one. Clearly, physically, you need to not burn the candle at both ends because you'll burn yourself out, go to bed, you know, whatever. If you're an early riser, get to bed early type of thing. I'm pretty good at that. Um, but what also I've got better at is understanding when I'm beginning to sort of run out of emotional energy and find a way to get it recharged. Now, for me, when I'm in camp, it could be something as simple as a, there's a lake not far away from here. It's a walk around the lake. Or sometimes I'll drive back to Leeds to see the family. Um, it's a four-hour drive up and a four-hour drive down. It's in 24 hours and most people think I'm mad. But actually, eight hours in a car on me, I'm thinking. And getting out the goldfish bowl and realising there's another world going out there when you think everyone's actually assessing your every move um, is not a bad way either. Um, so it's different ways for different people, but whatever your way is, you need to find it. And if you don't find it, uh, and you continue to burn the candle at both ends and your emotional energy burns out, your decision-making becomes poor. You make poor decisions on relationships or conversations, and as a consequence, you make a bad job, get progressively worse. So that walk around the local lake, getting a bit of exercise, allowed Stuart the thinking time to go through his plans in his own mind and gave him that space that he needed. He's a very private family man as well, and that car trip... Uh, might have seemed like an extra thing for people to fit in. 
But for him, being anonymous in a car for several hours and spending the time with his close family recharged him more than it depleted him. And I think not having to be someone is also important. In those training camps, the coaches are under so much scrutiny. You're always on show. So I'm just imagining Stuart jumping up on the sofa back at home with his kids and the dog and that bringing him right back to earth. I don't know if he actually had a dog during that time, but I think you get my point. We all have to work out what energizes us and what tires us. For some people, social occasions are absolutely draining and for others, they're completely energizing. So knowing yourself and knowing how you find that balance and those rhythms is absolutely essential to developing a strong and resilient mindset. So Debbie dropped me an email through from Sydney and asked, how do athletes cope when they have low periods like injuries? And what can we learn from this in our wider work and wider life? So thanks, Debbie. Thanks for listening in from Sydney. And uh, I've selected a really powerful insight from our Members Club library for you, Debbie. And it comes from one of our top female sports stars in the UK, Helen Richardson-Walsh, who was part of the gold medal Olympic hockey winning team in Rio. What you're going to hear now is an incredibly moving story of the timeline between the London 2012 Games and the Rio Olympic Games in 2016 when Helen got injured. This wasn't just an injury, this was a seismic shock to her career aspirations, her identity and her life as she knew it. So this is a much longer clip than I usually put in, but I think you'll really resonate with this if you've had any kind of setbacks and low periods in your life. In my career I've, I've I always say unfortunate enough um, to have had several in, in injuries, career-threatening injuries. And um, when I was around 20, 21, 22, I had um, three operations on my ankle and I was out of the game for two years. And, you know, in that period of time, I learned so much about myself. I was still relatively, well, I was really young in, in, in well, definitely compared to where I am now. And at the start of my career, and I found it, it difficult at that time to to cope with being injured, um, and I was I kind of I, I struggled to watch hockey. I struggled to watch other people playing it because I was so down about not being able to play, and so I found that I really isolated myself from from hockey, from my friends, and, and things like that. And that was when I was, was that age. But I did learn throughout that experience to, um, to, to, to really train properly. So before I got injured, I really struggled to push myself physically in, in physical training. I love playing sports. I love games. I'm, you know, hockey, cricket, football, whatever. But when it came to exercise and actually physical training, I hated it. Um, but being injured in that time, I had I had to do it. There wasn't any excuse at that point. So I I actually learned quite a lot about myself in that time. I learned how to set goals in training. I learned how to physically push myself through some of those barriers that I've really struggled with. And when I came back, I, I came back in completely different body shape than when I started. Um, so in 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 that in that situation was a. I took positives out of it, even though it was a negative situation. 
But the, the, the hardest time in my career has no, no doubt been when I had back surgery. And so since between London Olympics and the Rio Games, I had two, two back surgeries. And the first one was in 2013. And, you know, mentally I was able to get my head around it. It was in the year after the Olympics. If you're going to get injured, that's the best time. And even though I knew I was going to miss a tournament, which was hard, mentally I was okay. And I was in a lot of physical pain. I, you know, my disc ruptured. Um, bits were floating around my spinal cord and it was sending real shocking pain down my leg. I wasn't able to sleep. And pain is so debilitating and it, and it can really cause a lot of stress. And then when you don't sleep on top of that, it's, it's really, um, it, it, it just got me really down and really low. But because of the timing of that injury, I was able to cope with it a little bit better. And so I, you know, I had the surgery and it went well, I thought, and I started on the, the rehab and I got back into the team. Um, but then 11 months later, the same thing happened again. And this time it was only 20 weeks away, I think, from the, the World Cup. And I was, in my head, I was desperate to go to that World Cup. Um, and I had, again, all the physical symptoms. But this time I was, had more kind of doubts around, okay, this has happened once, this has happened again, this is your back. You know, you've had nerve damage already. This is your back, you know. It, is the, the goal of becoming world champion, of Olympic champion, worth risking potentially, you know, permanent damage to your back and, and nerves? Um, so that was all going in my, on in my head. I then had the, in, a new coach who didn't necessarily know, well, I didn't feel, knew what I could bring to the team as much as my old coach. So I had a lot more doubts around selection and whether I would get back into the team. Um, and that was really difficult to deal with. And in the, in the immediate time frame, I thought, right, I spoke to a few people, but my, I, I can never say no to not trying to go to that World Cup. And so I thought, right, I know I'm going to isolate myself from this team. I know I'm going to be really difficult to be around unless I do something about it. And so I decided to write a blog. And that's something that I would never have done. Um, I'm someone who's quite personal. I like to keep things inside. But I knew that if I did that, it would make me talk. It would help uh, my teammates understand what I was going through. I hoped it would be quite cathartic. It would get some of these thoughts out. And also, kind of, I hope that other people might be able to, to take something from it. So it kind of took me out of my own head. You know, it was bigger than me. Um, and the response I got from that blog was just incredible. It was, it was amazing. It, it did, it massively helped. And I got so much support from not only my teammates and my family, but also, you know, the wider hockey, hockey family, which is incredible. And it, it, it motivated me, it inspired me, it kept me going to, to get back onto that pitch before selection. And, you know, I did everything I could, but I didn't get selected for the World Cup. And that's when, 
that's when I really kind of hit hit rock bottom. Um, it was the first time in my career that I hadn't been selected for a tournament that I thought I was up for. I had feelings of, I guess, embarrassment maybe because of that. Um, and mentally I was really struggling. I was depressed. If I had depression, I don't, you know, I don't know that the doctors maybe thought I did. Through a reasonable amount of time, I, I kind of used other strategies to try and get myself back to, to me. I didn't feel, I feel like I'd lost me. And I used things like mindfulness, I used the Headspace app um, to try and... Because I, I guess what I was doing was I was always thinking about the future. I was thinking about what I, what I wasn't achieving, what I wasn't doing, rather than what was important and who I was and staying in the moment and worrying about what might happen rather than just going, okay, this is where you are now, this is fine. We'll worry about the future later. And I, I found the mindfulness thing really help. Um, helped me kind of almost get back to who I was. Um, and through time and through um, I guess hope, actually, because at some points I kind of only had really hope left. And I still wanted to become Olympic champion. That was still, still my, my goal. Um, and I went and saw a few different people. I, you know, I had therapy and stuff like that, um, which really, really helped. Um, and I also then got some more physical training for my, for my back to kind of get the confidence in my, my body. Um, and I literally probably had a good two or three months period of time where I, in my head, I was doing that thing of, you can't do this, you're not gonna be able to do this. Sometimes it would last a split second, sometimes it was a couple of hours of real, like, you're, you're not gonna be able to do this, your body is telling you to stop. You know, you've been, You've put yourself through this for 15 years. Um, but I wanted to be an Olympic champion. And uh, so, yeah, I kept, I kept going. And each day, gradually, I got stronger. And physically, I got stronger and mentally, I got stronger. And I got back onto the pitch. And I had, even though I was dealing with targets to hit from the coach, I was having to be on the pitch at this time. I was having to be proving something else by this date. I, and, but that kind of challenge, that challenge is what I love. I love a challenge and it, it really spurred me on and pushed me and I made sure I was gonna be on that pitch at that date. And, and, I, and I did, and I did it. And I got back onto the pitch and I, you know, 2015 was a, was a good year. You know, we won the Europeans, but physically I wasn't my best. But I was there, and that was all that mattered. And and being involved in 2016 was it was was amazing because of that experience. Being selected, you know, from having gone from someone who never really overly worried about selection to then being so nervous about getting an email before uh, for the Rio Olympic Games was an experience that I'm really pleased I've had. Um, 
because it allows me to be so much more empathetic with those people who every time went through that experience. And it's easy to say because it worked out. I got back onto the pitch and I went to the Olympics and I'm now an Olympic champion. Um, but it, and it de definitely made it all feel a lot sweeter when it did happen, that's for sure. So when you watch that video, you can see the raw emotions of despair and desperation on Helen's face as she clawed her way back to fitness and ultimately into selection for the chance to win a gold medal. Coming back to your question about what can we learn, Debbie, I think we heard some key insights there. Firstly, there was a recognition that she had to attack the cause of the issue head on. She hated training. She hated those physically tough sessions. But the, this was the only way that it would give her the physical and mental resilience that she needed to get back on track and to get back to her best. So she went straight for it. Secondly, she wrote down her emotional journey on a blog. Now, whether it's an outward facing blog for a sponsorship group or on social media or a private journal, writing things down forces us to get them out of that tangle in our head and rationalise them down into a series of neat sentences. This stops us from ruminating and makes us create a tangible list or paragraph of what it actually is. The worry, the anxiety, the consequences of failure, whatever it is that's looking like spaghetti in our mind, we need to write it down and force it out into the open onto paper and that can be incredibly cathartic. Helen also speaks about the isolation that her injury initiated. Almost like she was turning on herself. Part of her recovery was to reconnect with hockey, reconnect with her teammates and re-find herself. She said she'd lost herself at one point. I think that's a signal of mental ill health. We lose our joy. We lose that connection to our strengths. And we need to dust those things down to get back to our best. Sometimes we need other people to help us with that, whether it's supportive friends, challenging coaches or skilled professionals who can ask those questions to help us to bridge the gap between where we currently are and where we want to get to. The challenge with mental ill health is that we live in our own brain and we go round and round in circles, ruminating late at night about the things that are going wrong. And sometimes when that third party comes in and asks us a question and says, what could you have done in this situation? Or what are the options here? We are forced to think differently. We're forced to think about solutions rather than problems. We're forced to think about options rather than barriers. And that starts to help us to move forward and bridge that gap between where we are now and where we want to get to. And the other powerful insight that I took from Helen's story was that ambitious goal setter where it can sometimes be that we get paralyzed by our goal. She was so desperate to be an Olympic champion. She was so desperate for the medal, so desperate for the outcome, the selection, that it almost was too much of a burden for her in that short term when she was in a dark place. So I think part of having a great mental game is knowing when to dial up the focus on your long-term goals and when to bring the focus back to the moment, back on the process, back on the next step that we need to make when our legs are sore, our back's sore. We've got to do those extra three reps. We've got to do those extra things. 
And this point is reinforced now by Jonathan Fader, who's one of the leading psychologists from New York. Jonathan explains that being outcome focused can actually be a burden that prevents us from enjoying our daily lives, our sport and our work. I found that one of the most effective methods to, for help people to, to build confidence actually ties back to motivation. Uh, that I think a lot of times confidence is built on outcome results. I'm only a good athlete if this happens. And that's really precarious, right? Because you're basing your confidence only on what other people think, the you know metrics of your sport, rather than defining for yourself a, a personal ethos and a belief system about what's important to you in the world, in your career. Uh, what's actually why are you in this sport to begin with? Why are you a business person? Why are you a peak performer? Why do you want to succeed? Oftentimes those values are much bigger than winning a particular game. They often have to do with things like uh, making an impact in your family or in the world or in your community. They often have to do with gaining a certain kind of power that can help you to create change. They often have to do with really just a deep level of enjoyment of the sport. So if you're measuring yourself on how much did I enjoy this, how much did I make an impact in, in my career, any one game, any one match isn't going to be able to shake you in the way it does people who are just defining their own self-worth, uh, particularly on the outcome. So this is a profound point. We're not saying be soft and give up and don't set goals. The point is that if we're losing traction towards our goals due to injury or the pandemic, it's affected your hopes of promotion or selling your business this year, then rather than turn on yourself and cannibalize your own confidence, we've got to focus on making each day the very best it can be from where we are now, not where we could have been if the pandemic hadn't struck, not where we could have been if we'd been selected, not where we could have been if I hadn't had that back you know, issue with my slip disc. From where I am now, how do I take a step forward? You can't be an Olympic medalist as you recover from a back surgery lying on the bed, but slowly, day by day, you can build those mental and physical choices and disciplines and habits that give you a chance to get back to your best, that gives you more confidence to take on more risk and lift more weights and more adventurous shots that allows you to get selected. And then we should enjoy that process of working hard and making progress and being disciplined and striving for something. Even if the final prize is whipped away from us, we have to celebrate that process. But the challenge for us is that all anyone celebrates is the outcome. These are the gold medalists. These are the multimillionaires. But for the vast majority of us, we're trying to get our job back after being made redundant. We're trying to recover from an injury that we've had or we're trying to get back from a, a really tough period of our lives. And that's much more about being optimistic and being disciplined around some of those basic choices which allow us to be healthier and happier day to day. That's success in itself. I had another question through on email to hello at sportingedge.com from Marco who said, my 12-year-old son seems to have lost his confidence and thinks his friends are better at everything else than he is. Do you have any words of inspiration for him, please? Well, firstly, thanks, Marco. I'm glad you got in touch. And as a dad of two teenage girls, I absolutely empathise with your situation. 
I'm not sure if there's a perfect answer, but hopefully these next couple of points help you. And I took a couple of points from the wording of your question, so I hope I've interpreted this correctly. Firstly, children at that age of around 12, 13 are really trying to develop their identity of who they are and how they fit into the world. So they're approaching puberty, their bodies are changing and the importance of that social acceptance in their peer group really starts to ramp up and they become hypersensitive to whether they're fitting in or not. So the challenge is that we often compare the worst of ourselves and our own insecurities and our own things that we don't like about ourselves to the best of everyone else. And then we form some kind of composite model. So, for example, we might think that one friend is amazing at football. Another one is really stylish and has loads of really nice clothes. One's really good looking and, and you know, loads of girlfriends. Another one's really funny and maybe another one is really good at maths. So out of our group of five or six mate, we then, mates, we then create this singular godlike persona of sort of the Cristiano Ronaldo maths nerd who swallowed a joke book and has got a gag for every occasion. And then we compare all of our insecurities of having spots and being rubbish at equations and getting ribbed for a crap t-shirt that we wore a year ago to this iconic sort of dream state of Professor Ronaldo. Firstly, the hilarious Professor Ronaldo doesn't exist. And secondly, um, you've got amazing strengths and, you know, each of us have got uh, our own strengths. And, and for you, for your son, uh, I'm sure those other boys are envious of, of your son for something that he does really well. Maybe he's good at music or maybe he's good at a different sport. But we just overlook these strengths in ourselves when we're feeling low. Um, so one exercise might be to make a list of all the other people's weaknesses and make a list of your son's strengths. So then at least we get a second reference point, which allows us to be, uh, you know, a little bit more balanced. Because in all honesty, the truth's probably somewhere in between. Some people are better at us than other things, but we shouldn't believe this airbrushed world that we see on Instagram because as we've heard from Helen Richardson Walsh, even Olympic gold medalist legends have low periods. And it's actually about how we, you know, use our own strengths and how we make the most of our own story and the path that we're on ourselves that's really, really important. I also searched through our library and found this insight from one of the world's leading experts on emotional intelligence. This is Martin Newman, who runs Roche Martin, with some advice, which I hope helps your son too. There's a great deal of pressure on children today, I think, to conform to images of what they're supposed to be like and how they're supposed to behave and so on, that puts us under a lot of pressure and creates a lot of worry for children and a lot of concern about how they measure up. And I think emotional intelligence tells us, look, in the end, um, each one of us is, is really quite unique and has a unique set of skills and a unique contribution to make. And the key, while we're young, as young people, is to begin to understand what's distinctive about us, what we bring to the world that will make a valuable contribution and that will be of help to other people. And not to constantly be judging ourselves by the standards of other people. So when we look at ourselves, first and foremost, to understand that we mightn't be everything, that other people want us to be. We mightn't be everything sometimes our parents want us to be or our teachers want us to be. But when we really look at ourselves in the mirror, to realize that we're okay, 
just as we are and to accept um, that we're not what we were yesterday, we're not what we were last year, but we're certainly not what we're going to be next year or tomorrow. There's room for us to continue to improve ourselves too. And that begins with making the decision to value your experience for where you're at right now. And then based on that, you can relax and then learn to tune in to the sorts of things that you think make you special. Uh, and particularly where you can help other people and focus on other people and how you might encourage them and build their confidence and build your own set of skills to make a distinctive contribution. Uh, you might be good at maths or you might be good at English or you might be good at sport or you might be good at drama, but you'll have a unique set of abilities. They might be musical. And to focus in on those skills and build really um, a high level of skills so that you can face the world. You might not be good at everything, you might not be as good as someone else, but you know, you're the best you can possibly be at that set of skills. And I think when you like yourself and accept yourself, when you feel good about what you do, it gives you the strongest platform possible for developing into an adult um, a person that's really liked and highly regarded and brings something really important to the world that other people will find valuable. So this ability to focus on ourselves and what we uniquely deliver is something that goes against the social norms of this is what you're supposed to be and this is what you're supposed to wear and this is what we all consider a success to look like. Especially after this time when the world's been thrown up into a spin we need to redefine what our definition of success looks like. And rather than exhaust ourselves chasing everyone else's goals, we need to think more about ourselves and build a life around that. We waste so much of our mental energy chasing what we think we need to be or do. So making ourselves the priority might feel like the last thing we should be doing when we've lost our self-worth. But when we're stuck in a rut, it can be the best starting point to get us moving forward. I always think that we're either on a constant spiral moving up towards our well-being and our commercial goals and our career goals, or we're sliding down with poorer choices in what we eat, how we think, who we spend time with and the decisions that we make in our career. So each of the choices that we make on day-to-day -day basis allows us to speed up, slow down or reverse the direction of travel because we're constantly in this dynamic flow up and down this spiral. So when we get enough positive choices lined up, we move up the spiral and that becomes inevitable. This insight from ballerina Victoria Marr shows the importance of us taking this control of the choices through our days and through our lives so that we can keep our mental and physical well-being moving in the right direction. I think sometimes you don't know how bad you feel until you feel really good. And quite often um, I get through performances on little sleep because I've been nervous the night before and not slept well, or, you know, I've been distracted and I've, I've not paid enough attention to what I've, I've, eaten, I've eaten or drunk. Um, so I, I could definitely get by and I could definitely still knock them out and, you know, give a good performance. And then when you actually say, right, okay, I want to be on top of everything, 110%, and you put some focus into nutrition, you put some focus into you know, your sleep and what you're doing, you, you suddenly find, even if it's just another 2%, that way I had more left in the tank, I had a bit more energy, I had a bit more focus, um, you know, 
I was I was so confident that my body was going to do what I wanted it to do that I just enjoyed it. I just complete abandonment to it, and that I think comes from, like I say, that that even if it's just that two percent, good sleep, good food. You don't always know it until you've you know until you've felt better, but you didn't feel quite as good as you could. Quite often, when you're not looking after yourself, it's actually a um, a symptom of, of the way you're feeling and lots of other things you're thinking. I think when I'm not taking care of myself and I'm being a bit, you know, I'm neglecting my body, it's not really, it, it, it's more a symptom of my head. If I'm not feeling happy with me, um, when I'm feeling on form, um, I want to take care of me because I'm like, I'm great, I want to stay great. Um, when you're not feeling great, that's often the time that you, you know, you neglect your mind, your body, um, you know, you don't get a lot of sleep, you don't eat the right things because you're a bit down or you don't feel like you're the priority but when you want to be at your utmost you have to feel good about yourself and you have to make you and your body a priority for that period of time. Now again I'm aware that we're showcasing someone who's had an incredibly successful career but they're expressing exactly the same challenge. How do I pick myself up and prioritise my own well-being when I'm spiralling down and going through a period of poor choices and poor momentum. So if you're listening and thinking, well, I don't want to be a ballerina. I just want a bloody job, any job. I just want to move forward in my life. Then I understand that. But even setting small goals around setting an alarm in the morning, getting showered and dressed by a certain time and getting some healthy food choices and exercise into the morning part of our day can really seem like massive heavy lifting at a time when you're really struggling for emotional energy. But this will give you the emotional energy you need to take the next step and build the momentum and take the next step as you start to spiral. And then that upward spiral will begin and keep moving in your favour with more and more discipline. So we just need to halt the downward spiral and start to creep forward through the next meal that we choose, whether we exercise or not whether we reach out to a friend and have a conversation or not, whether we fill in that job interview form, whether we start to research on the internet again, these positive choices that we make can really help us to move forward. So our goal is to make better choices about our mindset and our well-being than we did last week. So that if we can make this week better with our support and guidance from our network, then we can really start to regain some control over our lives. We can start to build some confidence that we're getting up, we're more active, we're healthier, we're making some good choices, we feel more energetic, and then we start to make some traction towards the goals that we've set for ourselves. So I really hope that helps you if you're in a bit of a rut at the moment. I know that over the last 12 to 18 months, I've had some periods of, you know, two to three weeks where I felt really flat and everything's been a real struggle. But I just try and think about that next choice and that next day and how I can start to, you know, claw my way back to my best self and eating healthily, exercising, being a positive influence. And and that's when I know I'm at my best. So we all have those challenges and I really hope that you found this content helpful. And remember, We had that theme around being in nature and you don't have to hike up Machu Picchu to tick the box. Nature is all around us. So grab your lunch and eat it in the garden or grab a tea or a coffee and and sit in the garden. Maybe light the fire pit one evening 
as you sit out or take a book and read it under a tree in the park. All of those things will immerse you in that sensory world of being out in nature, which we've already spoken about having so many benefits to our mind and our energy levels. Remember, if you're feeling more energetic, then join me in that idea of going for a jog, uh, and you can jog or walk as much as you like and break those up until you've done your bit of exercise. And the key for me is always finishing feeling like I want to do some more or I could come back the next day because I think one of the challenges when people's New Year's resolutions don't work is that they beast themselves once in the gym on the 5th of January and then they're so sore and fatigued that they never go back. So let's think about this as a long lifestyle change with just more activity and more exercise and more fresh air out there. If you'd like to learn more about mental well-being and resilience, remember that we've got the free webinar at sportingedge.com forward slash resources. There's a great hour of content there, so it's free and it features lots of the insights from our experts in our digital library as well. So please do go over to sportingedge.com forward slash resources and you'll see all those free webinars there on leadership and this particular one on mental well-being and resilience. And if I can help you or your business with any content or webinars, then please do drop me a note to hello at sportingedge.com. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do drop me a note on LinkedIn or leave a review on Apple. I'd love to say thanks so much to Dave and Ellie, who said that this is one of the best podcasts around. I really appreciate that, Dave. There's lots of podcasts around and if you've left a review and give me a rating, that really helps the show to stand out for others to hear about our expert insights and it really will inspire them to make some healthy and uh, positive choices in their lives and careers as well. So that's it for now. Please take care and give care to those around you. Make sure you're staying connected to all the people in your team and focus on moving forward one step at a time up that mental well-being spiral until next time good luck and i'll see you soon thanks for listening to this episode of inside the mind of champions connect with jeremy's linkedin twitter and instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work if you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.